Greetings in the Lord Jesus. It's good to be here. It's good to be speaking to all of you. Feels a little odd knowing that uh, there probably are more listening than there are here. Thought about it this afternoon as I was finishing up preparing and thinking about it. I often uh, sort of visualize the people I'll be preaching to, and this time as I prepared, I was sort of visualizing the pike for some reason. But anyway, welcome to all. What's a moderator's message? Uh, every year at conference, whoever is the moderator of conference is supposed to give a message. I guess it could be sort of a State of the Union address. Uh, it usually has to do with something that's on the moderator's heart. And uh, I've done it twice before, and both times I spoke mainly to the ministry, mainly because they're the ones that are there in the middle of the day when it's usually given. This time the executive committee, when they decided not to have regular sessions, asked me to give it tonight. So I'll speak to all of us. Title is Current Threats to Southeastern Mennonite Conference. Current Threats to Southeastern Mennonite Conference. I want to talk about the enemy's efforts to steal the hearts of disciples of Jesus. Now, 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. What starts out by saying, be sober, be vigilant, because he does that. Well, he doesn't currently appear that way to us. The dangers that he presents, we don't hear the lion roaring. Probably more it's the angel of light that uh, he comes as. And as I thought about things that I wanted to share with you all, looking into my own heart and observing people in our churches over the past 42 years since I've been here, I'm not old enough to have been around all that time, I came up with uh, a number of the enemy's efforts to steal our hearts, and these are dangers that we face as believers today. And... Uh, a little unusual, this time I made my points alliterative, not all the same letter, but always the same letter within. So we'll start. The first, the me mentality. The me mentality. So Titus 3.3 3 says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Serving diverse lusts and pleasures. And we were once there. Look around our world, it's the me generation. Well, maybe it's past the me generation, it's the double me generation by now, I'm not sure. Jesus taught something different. He said, I am among you as he that serveth. And he lived something different. And we are his disciples, we follow him. And I think probably the most real danger we face in today's world is that we begin to believe the lie and bow down to self. We start serving self instead of our God. That idol is one that we see every day and we see people bowing down to him all around us. And you know as well as I do that if you hear something often enough, we start to believe it. You see that in today's political world. Life is for having fun. You only live once. You are the most important person out there. Make sure you take care of yourself. You hear it everywhere. And it's a lie. And if we, we face that temptation to bow down to me all the time. Now there's an antidote to that. And probably I could say this is the antidote to every point I make this evening. Be a disciple. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Be with Jesus. Know him. Learn of him. Learn from him. Practice living like him. Make loving and following him the most important thing above anything else. That's the antidote to the me mentality. Put the old man to death. Be born again into new life. Go to the doorpost and get your ear pierced. Lord, I am yours from now forward, do with me what you want. I refuse to run my own life. I will let you run it. Show me your will. Teach me your way. 
learn of Jesus Christ how to live, and then follow him. And I, I thought of just practical things. How would Jesus spend his money if he had money? How much would he spend on a vacation? How much would he spend on hunting supplies, a sewing machine, eating out? Would Jesus go to the amusement park, the ball game, the beach, that store? Would Jesus follow this or that important person on Facebook, Twitter, name it, whatever? Would he even use Facebook? Would he go to that website you went to today? Would Jesus use an ad blocker if he was using the internet? Would he use a filter? Well, we might say he wouldn't need to. In fact, we might say we wouldn't need to. And asking those questions reminded me, I've heard people already who answered some of those kinds of questions in sort of foolish ways. They said that Jesus would do some pretty stupid things simply because they wanted to do them. They wanted Jesus to be like them and not vice versa. We must know him. We must come to him. We must learn of him. We must live with him every day. He needs to be in us and we in him. If if you didn't spend time with him today, if you didn't open his book, if you didn't listen to him speak, if you didn't speak to him, if you didn't think about the decisions you made today in the light of the fact that you were his disciple, then there's really only one other option as to whom you were following. And yes, that's the enemy. But he wears the guise of self. There are two kingdoms. We know that. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of self. Maybe that's not what you expected me to say. But I think that's the one that really gets us. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, Jesus said. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. We are his disciples. We are his servants. We are his love slaves. And if we are, we must specifically renounce self and self's right to rule. Now, sometimes we try to baptize the me mentality. I mean, after all, Christ died for me, so I must be important, right? No, that's glorifying the wrong person. We were totally unworthy to be saved. It's God's love, it's God's glory that we should be pointing to. It has nothing to do with us other than that God loved us, he created us, and he loved us, and he did something about it. Salvation is not about me, it's about him, that we that I should be to the praise of his glory. And we profess to love him, profess to follow him, and yet much of the world hasn't heard about him. And he told us to tell others. And yet when his church calls, <laughs> need someone in Guatemala, by the way, Guatemala is just crying out for help right now, Will I go? Who's in charge? If I do go, will I go for the right reasons? It all comes back to whom I'm living for. Whom I'm bowing down to. No, not everyone's supposed to go. We know that. No, not everyone's supposed to go to Guatemala. Everyone is supposed to go. Am I living for the God of heaven or for that other little shriveled up being who represents the other kingdom? Can I be his disciple and still be the most important person in my life? That's idolatry. The me mentality is deadly to us. It's deadly to our congregations but we just naturally have it as human beings, and we like it. And so we must be on our guard 
constantly against it. The me mentality. Well, the next one I called the knowledge notion. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The knowledge notion. This is where Paul is starting to deal with the issue of meat offered to idols. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Now as touching things offered unto idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up. But charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything. He knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. Alright we know that meat offered to idols. There's nothing wrong with it. Paul goes on to say that. There isn't anything wrong with it. Well, a little later he does say something might be wrong with it. But anyway. And I find that we are pretty quick to say things like that too. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not sin. There's nothing wrong with me doing it. Is that true? If we have to say that about it, I have my doubts. <laughs> Go down to verse 9. And Paul told them, Take heed, lest by any means this power, this liberty of yours, becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which has knowledge, set at meat in an idol's table, shall not the conscience of him that is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. The, there's nothing wrong with that attitude as wrong because our focus is wrong we're looking at this issue and we're looking at us and we want to know do we want to do it or don't and that or, or not and if we do well there's nothing wrong with that when we ought to be looking at our Lord Jesus Christ the fact that it's not sin really has nothing to do with it My relationship to the Lord Jesus, my love for him, and my determination to serve him has everything to do with it. If it's sin, I know already I'm not going to do it. At least I should. If it's not sin, then it comes to another question. What does my Lord want of me? So, yes, maybe it's not wrong. But if it will hinder my spiritual life, it will hinder my brother's spiritual life, I will not do it while the world stands, Paul said. And I think sometimes we have overblown this thing <laughs> so much that it's become a habit to us. We even find ourselves making our decisions based on uh, something like this. Well, the church doesn't say we can't do it, so it must be all right. If that's our rule of life, we're on the wrong road. We're on the wrong way. We're looking the wrong direction. <laughs> If you're depending only on the church to figure out for you what you may and may not do, you're on the wrong road. We must be in the vine, Jesus Christ. We must be taking our life from him. We must be learning of him and, and taking our direction from him. We must be following him. And if we're doing that, we will be making choices about what to do and what not to do that go beyond what our church asks of us. We'll be doing them based on what will best glorify God and will please Him. And besides, that rule was only a step, tiny step down to the next level where we start saying, well, I can do it as long as the church doesn't find out about it. And that's simply hypocrisy. We call ourselves the disciples of the Lord Jesus. We call ourselves lovers of God, we're on fire for him, and yet we live that way. God can see us. He can see our hearts. This knowledge notion is where we, uh, where, where rights come in, our rights. We know we have certain rights. I have the right to be upset, to feel hurt if a brother or sister hurts me. Or I think I do. I know I do. I have the right to my own opinions, the right to make my choices based on what I think I know. Our Lord Jesus knew 
just how rebellious you and I would be. He knew how many times we would fail him, how many times we would take our own way, deny him even. He knew it all, and yet he laid down every right he had as the Son of God. And he suffered far more than you or I will ever understand because he loved us and wanted to remove from us that sinfulness. And now he comes and lives in us and empowers us, by the way, to give up our rights. We have one right, the right to die to our rights, and after that to keep on living without them no matter what we know. We have no rights. We have a Lord. We love him. We want to obey him. And dear old Apostle Paul, back a few chapters in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, talking to the Corinthians. Oh, let's start in at verse 7. He's talking to them on some of their problems, but uh, he says, For who makes you to differ from another? What dost thou that thou dost not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now you are full. Now you are rich. You, are, you have reigned as kings without us. I would to God you did reign, that we also might reign with you. He's being a little bit sarcastic or something here, but uh, we'll keep going. For I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle, a theater, unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even under this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are as the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. And he goes on to say, now some of you are puffed up. <laughs> he was still at it in Second Peter, Second or Second Corinthians over in chapter 12. I won't turn there, I have the verse here. He says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. I'll give up my rights, I'll give up my life. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. I know, one, I think about that song, This One Thing I Know, and then you sing about 20 different things we know. But anyway, there's one thing I know. The Lord Jesus gave his all for me. I am his and he is mine. And so by his grace and help, I'm not going to let some other knowledge rise up within me and cause me to displease my Lord. The knowledge notion we need to put away. Well, the third one, the Saul syndrome. This is 1 Samuel 15. We know the story well, I'm sure. 1 Samuel 15, Saul went out to destroy the Amalekites like the Lord commanded him to. He came back. Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the, people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay. And I will tell thee what the Lord hath said unto me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have done the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. 
And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Rebellion? All he did was keep a few of the things for himself. God expects us to obey him. We know that. And we say we do. I remember as a new Christian, I uh, went along with my sister to a gospel concert one time. The singer was up front with his long hair. And I was reading my Bible. I knew what it said. And I puzzled over that. I remember as a new Christian heading over to Charlottesville one day, tooling along in my little 74 Chevy Vega, which could go the speed limit, by the way. <laughs> Maybe barely. Uh, this carload of midnights passed me, going faster than the speed limit. And I was reading my Bible, I knew what it said. And I puzzled over that. I remember as a, a new pastor in a congregation, 30 years ago or more now, going into the council room and, and some members coming through and answering yes to all the questions. Including, I support the rules and discipline of the Southeastern Mennonite Conference. But they didn't. And I puzzled over that, too. I mean, at least they didn't do some things that they knew they should have. And I've noticed through the years that any time one of us chooses to ignore some standard or, or not do it, we can always give a pretty good reason why it shouldn't apply to us or why it doesn't apply to us. And to me, it just looks like disobedience. I'm not sure if I'm missing something or what. Something God calls rebellion. We talk about non-resistance. You turn the other cheek. You love your enemy. But when a brother or sister says something hurtful, we react in anger or bitterness or vengeful thoughts or words or faces at least. We find it far too easy to have gray areas. We call them that. But I've noticed that when a person gets on fire for the Lord and goes all out in discipleship, the gray areas start disappearing. Somehow they become black and white, which is all gray is anyway. They're, they just kind of go away. Brethren, I think we ought to all be more black and white. The Saul syndrome says, it's a gray area, so I can choose for myself. I recommend the David syndrome. It's a gray area. I want nothing to do with it. And many of us have grown up, more or less, learning that, that we can get away with not obeying. Parents, teachers. Other authorities, even church authorities, don't always enforce the rules that they have. And we fall into what the preacher talked about there in Ecclesiastes. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. But is God that way? Under the law, every Transgression had its just recompense of reward, Hebrews says. Does God, what God says, not particularly matter? Think about Achan. Whenever you're going into the land of promise, did what God say matter? Think about Ananias and Sapphira. They're at the beginning of the New Testament era. Did what God said matter? 
What if God always did that? Well, he doesn't. And I guess we're glad because none of us probably would be here. But today, when we disregard God's clear word, I thought of this passage, and I wonder, maybe doesn't have something to do with, with it. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment to himself. King James says damnation, but judgment is the word. Not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And I'm not sure I understand those verses fully, but it does say if we're claiming to obey God and aren't, we cannot ignore God's word and not expect to pay a spiritual price. We cannot. But let's don't focus on those negative results of the Saul syndrome. Let's get the David syndrome. Let's pursue the Lord with all our hearts. Teach me thy statutes. Teach me thy ways. Read Psalm 119. Well, maybe he didn't write it, but he could have. All right, another one. Fitting the form. Another danger. Fitting the form. So, 2 Timothy 3. We fill out forms. This is a little different I'm talking about now. Second Timothy 3, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-bakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. And we like to read that passage and we like to think about the churches out there that call themselves Christians and don't act like it. I would like for us to rather think about ourselves. We too have a form of godliness. We're good Mennonites. We do what Mennonites do. We have some forms. Forms are important. Without a form, you lose the content. Your brethren who ever poured concrete know you don't just go out and pour it on the ground and expect to have something neat. you got to have a form. You sisters, if you go to the refrigerator and want to get some milk out, you're going to find it in a form. It, if it's not, it's splattered all over the floor. But you have to have form to put the content in. And I'm not talking about clothing. I'm talking about other things. I'm talking about just life. Titus... Paul said to him, in all things showing thyself a form, well, a pattern in this case, of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, corruptness, gravity, sincerity. But if our form is empty, without content, we're on the wrong road. We call it formalism sometimes. Like Paul told the Galatians, Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. If you're trusting the forms, just doing what Mennonites do, you are fallen from grace. I'm talking about the content, the reality of abiding in Jesus Christ, knowing him, learning of him, from him, him living his life out in you, you living by his power, where you make loving and obeying him the most important thing in your life. And if you've lost that and are just a good Mennonite, you are on the wrong road. And because we do have more form than some churches, that's a danger to us, probably more than some. It's too easy for us to start just keeping the form and forgetting the content. You can read your Bible regularly, you can go to church, you can teach a class, you can even preach sermons, and still not be living daily and hourly by the power of God in you. 
That's formalism. That power comes only from the Lord Jesus abiding in us as we abide in him. And furthermore, we need to bring up our children to know and to love the Lord so that they don't just get the form. They need to know the reasons for the form. They need to come to the Lord Jesus themselves and get the content. And that's our job, to teach them and to help them to do that. And when we don't do it, it leads to spiritual disaster in our homes and in our churches. Many of our children will just turn away because it's just form anyway. And they throw out, like we say sometimes, the baby with the bathwater. They think because it's empty form, there's nothing. Or if we'd have just been hot for the Lord ourselves and helped them to be that, it would have worked. Fitting the form without the power. It is a danger. Well, the next one, the electronic extension. And I'll explain that a little further as we go. The electronic extension. From my perspective, looking back, oh, by the way, 49 years, I was going to say, this is the 50th annual conference but it's only been 49 years because they counted the, uh, the formation in 1972 as the first conference, and so we're in the 50th, but uh, can't count 50 years till next year. So looking back over the last 49 years, information technology has changed dramatically. 49 years ago, I'd have been at, uh, living at home. We had a black and white television, one channel, that's the only one you could get. We had a black phone, a rotary. The only thing digital about it was it had the digits around the rotor and you used your digit to dial it. It had a cord. We were on a party line. <laughs> I'd ask you how I many you know what a party line is, but I can't ask all of you, so I won't. We had a two-inch thick Sears catalog. We had Kodak cameras, probably mostly cheap 110s, where you buy a roll, take 20 pictures, send it into the company, and it comes back several weeks later developed. And then you get to see what it looked like. And on and on you could go. We used a road atlas to get around. My wife told me about somebody that went into a store one time and asked a young person for a road atlas, and he said, what's that? Compass was something special. A gadget to count steps, that was too. It was a mechanical little thing. It didn't work most of the time. We all wore watches. We read books. Encyclopedias on the shelves. Dictionaries. We went to brick and mortars. <laughs> Nobody called them that then. Pornography and terrible literature was available, but, but not all that readily. Now, one word, maybe two, <laughs> covers it all. Internet or cell phone. And the Internet's a generation old already. On the Internet, you have television, and you have all those other things I mentioned, plus a whole bunch I didn't mention, all combined into one giant tool slash plaything, slash theater, slash amusement center combination. And most of us have one. Cell phone, that is, or a computer, or both. And for most of us that have one, it has become an extension of ourselves in some way. We enter our phone number or our email address in just all kinds of places. on countless websites and apps. We call people sometimes. <laughs> we text, we WhatsApp, we video talk, we telegram, we Facebook, we Google, and about 20 other things that I didn't, don't know about probably. We take it everywhere we go. It's never far from us. 
Now, it is true we can do all those things on a computer, too, by the way, and that doesn't necessarily go with us, but maybe the pad does or the tablet or whatever we call them. And the fact is that our cell phones are super powerful computers that have become a part of our lives to a degree that without them, we would have some real problems, or we would think we would. I have noticed it's very freeing sometimes to have forgotten it and left it at home. But anyway, <clears throat> is that good or is that bad? It's reality. And think with me about this. For me, those gadgets, that cell phone, is still pretty much of an add-on. Yes, I have... Uh, What's the word? I have uh, going over to using it now for my date book. Didn't like that at first. Wasn't sure I would. And uh, don't use it for internet. I uh, have other things to do that for. But it's still not my native air quite for my sons. It's much less an add-on. They uh, started a good bit younger than I did. And it's probably more integral to their lifestyle than to mine. To my grandchildren, they're growing up with it. This is normal. They never knew anything different. I remember the first time I saw one of those little fellows swiping on the telephone and thinking, oh my, he already knows how to swipe. Well, sure. Sees daddy do it all the time. And that's not necessarily bad. It is life. Now, Proverbs says, The wise man or the prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. And I'm simply here to tell you there's evil <laughs> to foresee. And you better be looking ahead and you better be thinking about that, you young parents and maybe us older parents, too. We probably, most of us, feel like we're controlling it okay. And I do. But I have a little warning for us then from the Lord. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And if we do indeed stand, it would be because we understood that we could fall and because we fled from sin and determined to keep our trust placed in the Lord Jesus and we determined not to defile ourselves with the world's defilement. Now, on the one hand, we could say the Internet really hasn't changed anything. And that's true. Man is sinful. He always has been. He will continue to seek for selfish pleasures. The internet has given him many, many ways to do that that we didn't have 50 years ago. Believers have fallen into viewing pornography before. Yes, they had. They're just doing it in different ways now. That's all true. On the other hand, we can also say the internet has changed everything. And that's just as true. The Bible told us that iniquity would abound in the last days. The Internet has added a multitude of ways for that to happen. And professed believers who want to go find pornography never before had such a simple, accessible, private way to do it. Now, my greatest concern about the Internet is not pornography that's available, that is a concern. I think it's more the mindset, the notion that we can use it freely with no unhealthy spiritual results. It is an extension of us and the, the, the cell phone companies and they, they push that, personalize it, make it you, part of you. Well, and it, it almost is. It's in our pocket. We want it with us. We need it. We got to. And so there's a little truth to that. It definitely is a tool. We should use it like a tool. 
a useful implement to help us do the jobs we need to do. Use it carefully. It's a powerful machine with many moving parts and many sharp edges and there are no shields. OSHA ought to be on top of it. <laughs> you can get hurt quickly. And so, however, it's not only a tool. It's a toy. It's a plaything. It's an amusement center. It's designed by ungodly people to please ungodly people. And yes, the enemy has his hand in it then, of course. He wants to use it to lead people further into sinfulness, further into mindless pleasure-seeking, further into distractedness, further away from even thinking about God. And so, okay, it's a tool, it's got some uses, but it's also a worldly toy. We need to put some shields on it, we do. And we, as a church, have asked you to put shields on it. We must be using filters. We ought to be using ad blockers. I do use one on the computers I use. And once or twice in the last month, there was some site that would not let me continue without removing the ad blocker, so I did it. Advertisers have known for decades what it is that catches people's eyes and they use it freely. Now get an ad blocker and use it. You don't need that rot. We must be accountable to each other. And we ought to go well beyond the internet with accountability. We ought to be just open with each other anyway about our struggles, about our problems and helping each other. And we ought to be exhorting one another daily, like the Lord says. Beyond that, we must be making decisions about how much time, what kind of time, what kind of sites we will and will not visit, what apps we will have and will not have. And we go back to our love for our Lord and our desire to please him and the fact that we are his love servants and we want to be holy and pure like he is we are going after him with all our hearts to help us make those decisions that's a little clunky some filters can be. That's the word we use to mean that it slows us down a little. Not a bad thing to be slowed down a little. Uh, I do have Custodia on my phone. I think it probably slows down some things. I don't use it for internet. I have a bunch of apps from stores and things that I use, but I don't. And I have thought sometimes that maybe Custodio's making a little problem now and then. I don't know. I don't really care. I can go to my computer open it up and use it and it's got properly filtered things too a little slower well big who up <laughs> who told us we have to have everything instantly we've gotten into that i mean okay so what back in the 90s probably john risser and i let's see well maybe it was early i'm not sure anyway went to a brother's house who had the internet and we sat down and he showed us how it worked and we sat there and he said we it's awful slow this evening and if you had to wait as long as we had to wait that evening you really thought it was slow I'd rather have it a little clunky and know that uh, something's not going to come up that I don't want to see Conference did not rule out Facebook. Looking back, I think we should have. I wish we would have. I don't think we need it. Most of us don't need it enough to justify it. I think we should stay as far away from YouTube as we can. 
just because there's so much rot there that we can easily go to and it's not filtered out by your filter. And we must be training our children. We must be. You dare not hand them a phone and just let them go. You don't do that with dangerous tools. You certainly don't do it with devil-inspired toys. Our electronic extensions, they are not going to go away. I think we know that. Things are going to keep, uh, quote, improving, getting faster, more stuff. We had better make sure we've got them firmly under the Lordship of Christ. And we need our brothers and sisters to help us do that. Well, the last one I called the American Angle. 1 Timothy 2. I exhort, therefore, that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The New Testament is clear in our duties and relationship to civil governments. And I uh, always just kind of put them out in four points. Pray, pay, obey, honor. The New Testament is also clear that political leaders and earthly kingdoms operate on one principle. The kingdom of God, that's us, operates on another principle. The two cannot mix. And I'm afraid we've allowed our American citizenship to take up too much of our minds and our concern for being good citizens in God's kingdom has suffered. I remember years ago two brothers who really enjoyed discussing politics. They probably wasted hours at it. And at the time I didn't think that much about it. I, I didn't. But more over the years, I came to the conclusion that we ought not to even discuss politics. New Testament calls them, them, they. It calls us, you. Or we could say us, we. It's not our kingdom. It's not our business. It's theirs. They are them. The world, we are us, the body of Christ. We are not part of them. Oh, their actions may affect us, but that really has nothing to do with us. I still remember hearing about the Russian Christian who was asked what he thought of Mr. Putin, and he said, he's our leader. Yeah, well, what do you think of him? He's our leader. Now, maybe in Russia you don't say anything about your leader, and in America you can, but I'm impressed with that. I wonder if we wouldn't do a little better to be that way. Do we know what the sovereign God wants for the United States of America? Do you? Do I? Do we know what's best for an earthly kingdom? Why would we care? Do we have the right to criticize leaders in that kingdom? Well, in America, you have the right to do anything you want. That's true. <laughs> but which country are you a citizen of first, anyway? Now, if we lived in Sudan or China, we would probably understand a little more clearly that civil government is not our business. What they do is their business. We're subject to whatever they decide. They may start persecuting us. So what? That's been the experience of Christians in most countries throughout most of the ages. It's normal. 
It's not our job to tell them not to. It's not our job to try to fix that even. Will the United States government begin persecuting Christians at some point? I don't know. And it doesn't really matter. It doesn't concern me. What concerns me is, if they do, how am I going to respond? And how are we as a church going to respond? Are we going to respond in a way that honors the Lord Jesus or not? And I thought about the Mennonites here in America in the 1750s. They saw war coming. The French and Indian War was on the way. Had, well, French and the English had fought often, but anyway, they saw it was coming again. And did they get all fearful and worry? No, they got concerned. And they started working on getting a book printed, The Martyr's Mirror. But they wanted their young people to read so they'd be ready to stand. That seemed like wisdom to me. They didn't send any letters off to the king or anyone else to try to say different. They didn't wish the king would get put out of office and replaced by someone else. And in the past year, it, it has struck me that too many of us seem to have put our trust in political parties to make a difference for good in this country. Brothers and sisters, we need to get our focus off politics and on to obeying our Lord Jesus, to living out his life, to proclaiming his good news to the American people around us. Yes, that's our job. The American angle, politics, and feelings about politics even, it's not for us. We, our job is to know and to love the meek and humble Lord Jesus and to follow him as our Lord, as our Savior. To give our lives, to give up our rights, to even die for the good of others, to serve others. So, those are the dangers. I could have found more, I'm sure. <laughs> the me mentality, it's probably under all of them. The knowledge notion, where we think we know and we have our rights. The Saul Syndrome, where obedience, not that big a deal. Fitting the form, just being good Mennonites, <laughs> denying the power thereof. The electronic extension, controlling that part of our lives that is part of our lives now, and making sure we control it. And the American angle. This thing of letting politics get us wound up over something that we ought not be wound up over. May God help us. All right. I'll eat in closing prayer and then they'll turn off the machine and those of you who are listening will be cut off after that. So let's pray.